Hey Siri, remind me to pick up milk on the way home. Hey Siri, remind me about ballet practice at 5 p.m. Hey Siri, remind me to ask mom if I can borrow her car for Friday. Hey Siri, remind me to call the body shop. Hey Siri, remind me to take out the trash tonight. Siri, hey Siri, hey Siri, hey Siri, hey Siri, 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 sort of big and and the concepts are are sort of large and and at times you know you're just kind of sitting there going okay you know try to kind of process through what Paul is saying uh, chapter 4 starts sort of like the application side of chapters one through three. And so uh, just some context around Ephesians. The writer of Ephesians is the Apostle Paul. Um, Paul started a bunch of churches in all throughout the, uh, the area that they were in. And here's the deal. He actually was a Pharisee. He was somebody that would uh, kill and imprison Christians. Uh, Jesus met him encountered him, knocked him off his horse, all right, and and blinded him, changed his whole life, and he became an advocate for Christianity and wrote most of the New Testament. And so what he's doing is uh, he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. He's actually writing this letter from prison. He's been imprisoned for the gospel, and instead of weeping in the corner, which is probably what I would do, he decides to redeem the time and write a letter to uh, a few different churches. And so... He writes it again, the church is full of Jews and Gentiles, which is basically just non-Jews, uh, people that are coming from different backgrounds. They're in this culture that's um, a lot like our nation, lots of different backgrounds, lots of different approaches to how to do life, uh, relativistic thinking, you know, your religion's good for you, my religion's good for me. This type, of, this, this type of thinking is pervasive in that time. And so he's writing this letter to the church. He hasn't been there in a few years. And so he's reminding them of what he came and what he established. And it's also written to people much like ourselves, very busy people. Everybody's busy, right? You got a lot going on. I mean, even if you got like nothing going on, when people say, how's it going? You're like, oh, it's busy. Okay, that's just what you say. Uh, Or living the dream whenever really you're not because you're depressed or something, but that's just how you cloak it. Okay, but either way, he's writing this letter to the community of believers that really is a lot like us. Okay, so he's writing this letter to us to help us out. Chapters one through three really dig into the gospel and and who we are in Christ because of what Christ has done. And so there were some big concepts that we've gone through and walked through. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we talked about why does the church exist? And we even define the church, which is very important in our day and age. If you show up to church, it means you are the church. Actually, that's not the case. It's what you believe and who you believe in that determines whether you are truly the called out ones, the ecclesia. And, uh, and so even though this is an open room today, everybody's here, everybody's watching online, just because you're here or watching online does not necessarily mean that you are the church uh, because that's a matter of faith and trust right? And and it being invested and placed in uh, Jesus, his work, who he is and what he's done for you. And, uh, but whether you're a part of the church or not, I'm glad that you're here. And I hope that today as I talk that uh, some things might become more clear to you and you walk out of this place uh, better than whenever you came. So in that, one through three, who you are in Christ. Four through six is really about how does this play out? So we talk about why does the church exist? This is sort of like part two of two weeks ago which is how does the church live? How does the church live and operate in light of what Jesus has done in us, okay? And, and what he's changing us individually, but as he's changing us individually, it also changes us corporately, 
All right, so the church is not just individual people, it's also the corporate body. And so, uh, so that's what he's doing. Now, um, we live in a very health conscious society. I know Mississippi's like on the bottom of the list when it comes to that, but still, even in, you know, we're, I think I posted the other day, we're, we're also number one in how many people play Fortnite. So we have that going for us at least. <laughs> All right. Let's just keep moving on from that. Starting to get a little depressed, but uh, no. So, um, but but we live in a health conscious society. I mean, y'all look like even Taco Bell's in the mix. Uh, Taco Bell has like one of the, the most nutritious menus now. If you actually do research, it's pretty incredible. McDonald's had salads. <laughs> What's going on? All right, like our whole our whole society is just more aware of health. We're more aware of the medications we take, the treatments that we get, how it affects us later on in life. Um, and so in that, we're, we're, we're kind of programmed to think about that. I mean, even things like smoking years ago used to be like just, you know, celebrities, every movie, everywhere you went. You used to be able to smoke in a plane. Somebody told me that the other day. I think, it was, I think dad, yeah. Was, smoking a plane? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Could you imagine on a 12-hour flight, just like, just somebody just lighting them up, just Ah, that's terrible. Makes me gag just thinking about it. But, you know, we're more aware of, I mean, even the people that, that continue to smoke, at least they know what's going on. It's not like a surprise that, you know, we have all these issues that take place. We're just understanding our bodies more and we're more health conscious. Paul, in this letter, especially in these verses, he's talking to us about how to be health conscious about the church, about the community of believers. Now, I know that most of you probably when you think about your spiritual health, you are mostly thinking about your own spiritual health. You think about how am I doing? But today, I want you to kind of lift up your eyes and think about how are we doing? How, how are we doing? Do you ever think about the spiritual health of Northwood Church? Do you ever think and pray and process through that? How are we? How am I doing? How are my friends in my small group? How are they doing? How are we doing spiritually? Are we healthy? And Paul's like, I want you to be health conscious about the body of Christ. And he really, he lays it out in three different ways. He says, I want you to, he teaches us to be health conscious in, um, by doing three things, fighting for spiritual unity, celebrating our spiritual diversity, and to grow in spiritual maturity. Um, so by the way, if you've if you got your phone and you've got the YouVersion app, uh, you can open up, you can go to the bottom right to more, you can click on events, and you can pull up the map, you'll see Northwood Church, click on that, and you can actually see uh, the, the main points of today's message with those verses, and take your own notes, okay, so you can remember. Some of you are in sermon-based small groups, this would be a great thing to use because you can actually remember <laughs> what I talk about past lunchtime and also look back at your notes and maybe some questions that you get in order to flesh these things out in your small groups as well. But, uh, but let's jump into verse one of chapter four. And uh, this is what he says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk or to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager or diligent to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul has a, just a wonderful ability just to start talking and just 
<laughs> like, I mean, he's just busting through barriers, saying massive things that just really stack on top of themselves. But the first thing that he says when it comes to a healthy church, how do we live that out as a healthy church? He says that we must be a healthy church that fights for spiritual unity. A healthy church fights for spiritual unity. Now, if you notice, he says this, we don't create unity, but he says we maintain unity by the Spirit's help. So we don't manufacture or conjure up unity. God has united us through a different, few different things that we're going to talk about here today. Overall, he's united us through Jesus, but we have the responsibility to maintain unity, to maintain proper uh, and, and, and aligned thinking, aligned hearts. And so if you think that, that unity is created by one person only, like by the pa- as the pastor, like I'm the one who creates unity, you're wrong. And if you think that I'm the only one that maintains unity, you're also wrong. We maintain unity together by the Spirit's help. We have responsibility in this. So how are we united? What's some aspects that we're united in? Number one, we're united by divine calling. Divine calling. God called us out of darkness into light. God literally spent his one son, Jesus, spent his blood on our redemption, okay? He, on that calling, Paul says, because of that, you should work, uh, live worthy of that call. Like it, it cost Jesus a lot and you recognizing the gospel. Again, he started in chapters one through three in just massaging this into our thinking and, and pressing this into us, what Jesus has done for us. And then he's saying, live out of that. So if you don't understand the divine calling, then you're not gonna understand why you should live worthy of it, right? Car before the horse. And so he spent all this time just, just, hey, guys, this is a big deal. Now let's talk about what it looks like to live worthy of that calling. Number two, here he says, uh, how does this look? It looks like Christ-like conduct, that we are a healthy, a healthy church is united by Christ-like conduct. Basically, how does this play out in our life? What does it look like? Well, it looks like, number one, humility. It looks like humility. And humility at this time, by the way, it wasn't like a virtue. Okay, we kind of have built into our society this mindset of uh, doing to others as you would have them do unto you. People quote scripture and they're not even believers. You know what I'm saying? Or, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. They have this mindset um, that's just kind of permeated through the years into our culture. So generally speaking, we kind of have this mindset of humility um, in one sense. But in, in their time, that was not the case. Virtue, this, it wasn't a virtuous thing to be humble. It was actually the opposite. Pride. Pride. Pride is being consumed with yourself, placing yourself above other people. And Paul is directly coming against something that they've been taught to do. In our society, though, even though there might be a, like a thread of humility in some way, shape, or form, overall, we are a very prideful people. We're very prideful. If you don't think you're very prideful, think about the last time somebody really disagreed with you and what happened in your heart and what came out of your mouth. <laughs> what happened? Pride. <laughs> you know, does anybody else have like the heat that goes at the back of your neck whenever you get like super agitated? You know, you're like, <sighs> like your adrenal glands are just like, gah, gah. you're like fight or flight. I'm going to fight. You know, like this is, let's do this. Pride. Like don't mess with me. 
because you know my opinion, my thought process, who I am, we elevate ourselves above other people. And Paul's like, hey guys, in order to be a healthy church, a healthy community, you've gotta be united around this idea that you are gonna be humble. You're gonna act like Christ and you're gonna be humble. And the way that you interact with each other at the very least, but also how we, how we, we, we act to people that are outside of the church, outside, they're not that called out ones, right? That we're united by this this mindset. So Christ-like conduct looks like humility. Number two, it looks like gentleness. Now, not timidity, not shyness. Gentleness is not some sort of posture of weakness. It's actually, it's actually self-control. It's what the picture is. The picture is actually of a, of a tamed and disciplined animal. All right? Did y'all know that we are all animals, basically? Like, you take away our food source, you take away air condition, animals, okay? That's what we've become. Like, that's it. If you don't think so, just imagine with me if the whole food distribution, you know, structure that we have in America shut down for three days. What would it look like? It'd be mass pandemonium. All right, today you're sitting here all nice and, oh, this is a wonderful message. Three days later, you know, you're like Rambo out there, like, a biscuit, you know? Because you take food away, man, or you make it scarce, we turn into animals. And what he's saying here is, like, for us, I mean, I don't really know what I'd look like either, honestly, if you took away all that. But he's, he's given this picture that we are supposed to be gentle, humble and gentle with each other, that we are not supposed to be timid, but we are supposed to be self-controlled, have control over ourselves, over our words, over our actions. Remember, the next thing he says is it looks like patience. Christ-likeness, this conduct, it looks like patience. It can be defined as slowness in avenging wrong or retaliating when hurt by another. Slowness in response. Slowness in retaliation. Not waiting for somebody to do one thing and then blowing up on them. Patience. He actually takes it a step further And he actually talks about, we're going to get to it in a second, he actually talks about forbearance, which is pretty much, even if you do something intentionally against me, that I would let it go, that I would not retaliate, and that I would, if I do come with anything, it would actually be with compassion, a peaceful response, not not an angry one. Which, guys, honestly, I can speak about this so confidently because I never respond to anyone with lack of patience, or any sort of negative attitude whatsoever, right? That's why I'm up here today teaching all of you how to do this, right? I'm joking, I'm lying. Patience, you know, some of the things that we, we kind of refer to as simple things in the Bible, such as being patient, we sort of overlook at some point. We feel like we've, we've kind of graduated past those things. Whenever you really begin to lean into these things and say, man, am I acting like this? Am I actually doing this? And you start seeing that you're not, and it convicts, and it forces you to come up against those things, and it forces you really to repent, to change the way that you think about it. He says, be patient. The next thing he says, it looks like forbearance. And this really literally means tolerating someone even when they annoy you. Forbearance, putting up with each other. Can I kind of talk about the church a little bit when when it comes to putting up with each other? At some point, 
It might be, it might have already happened today, all right? At some point, I am going to say or do something that's going to annoy you. It's going to tick you off, man. You're going to be like, I can't believe that he would say that, you know? For some of you, I walked out and you're like, he doesn't have a tie on. You know, it might have been be as simple as that. Like, you know, it, it, could, it could be any of those things. At some point, I am going to annoy you. Paul says, forbear. Forbear with me, all right? But play it out in the church, in your small group. Somebody is going, going to, not, not if, okay? When. They are going to say something or do something that's going to just, it's going to rub you the wrong way. And you're going to have a choice to make. You're going to have a choice to make. Am I going to forbear? Am I going to choose unity and to remain in, in, in the right step with these people? Or am I going to run and to bail out? And here's the deal. If you run from one church community, and when I say church, I don't mean the building, I mean you in your relationship with all the people that you're literally pouring your life into. If you run from that community, it makes it a lot easier to run the next time it happens and to run the next time. And eventually you'll be the church hopper who goes all over the place and you never actually put your roots down anywhere and grow in Christ likeness with other believers. You're, you lose, you lose. I'm the pastor of this church, and I get annoyed. <laughs> Come on, man. Today, we didn't have coffee the first service. I don't know if we had coffee the second service. We had coffee? Okay, you're like, we're good. The first service was not as responsive, right? We didn't have coffee. Where's the coffee? You know, you, you'd be surprised, man. In the church, what happens whenever we ain't got, or the parking lot guy sends you right instead of left? <laughs> Gonna reverse and <laughs> you know, I want to go that way, not that. I'm going that way, and they're like, "No way!" There's small children who could die if you go that way. I don't care. I'm like, my God, like, help us, Jesus. You know, God, we need a good dose of persecution. I mean, we really do. Like, we just, we just, we need it, y'all. We are weak. We're weak. Anyway, forbear. This is a church full of regular people, and we got problems, we got issues. And uh, at some point, if you get close enough, you stay long enough, you'll see them. And I want to invite you to the community. I want to invite you to that process, uh, because there's something great on the other side of forgiveness. There's something great on the other side of forbearance. It's called unity and real relationships with real people that you can trust and grow with. It's really good. It's, good. it's a good thing to do. So forbearance. Then he says, forbearance, all of this in motivated by love, love. We talked a lot about love last week. And Paul, again, anchors us to this concept of love. And I want to read this together with you. Um, it's from Francis Folks. He says, love is the basic attitude of seeking the highest good of others. And it will therefore lead to all of these qualities, all the things that we've been talking about and more. It'll lead to these qualities. And it also includes them all at the same time. It's this concept of overlap. And as we grow in love, we will grow in all of these concepts because love are, contains all of these concepts, contains all of these things. So you know what? Whenever I'm struggling with patience, you know what I pray? God, would you fill me with your love more? God, would you give me a greater understanding of your love for me so that way I can, I can grasp that? I remember last week, 
so I can grasp that I can't fully grasp it, right? Like, help me to understand your love to such a point that I will realize that I can't truly understand your love. Like, that whole thing. Continue to reveal it in my heart so that way I can't help but react to people in the way that you would react to them. Like, those types of prayers, allowing God to flush out the world, flush out self, be filled with love, and you'll be filled with all of these things. And of course, we know that God is love. So the church is unified and God is glorified when we act like Christ. The next thing is that we are united by gospel confession. We're united by the gospel. He said, one body, one spirit, one hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God, and Father of all. He's saying all of this is one. We are one and we are united by what Jesus has done in Christ. And so the thing about this is that when the Gentile Christians said Jesus is Lord, what they were automatically saying is Caesar is not. By saying one thing, they were saying another. Whenever the Jewish Christian would say that Jesus is Lord, they were identifying that Jesus was God, that he was connected to the Hebrew God. And in that, they were saying that they believed that Jesus was God. And by both accounts, you could lose your life. You could lose your life. I was just reading this, this uh, I'm not really sure the year of it, but it was many, many years ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, there was people that were writing back and forth about how to navigate being a Christian in a society that was imprisoning and executing people who were, were naming the name of Jesus. And they were tech, it, it felt like they were almost texting back and forth the way that this letter was going back and forth. It was like, it was like how are we supposed to navigate life? Because now if we, if we are a Christian, we'll get murdered for it. They were, I read one account where the, uh, I believe it was actually, I believe it was actually Romans. They, they, they captured three women. They began to torture these women because they were Christians in order to gather information out of them about all of the Christians. Y'all know about the underground church in China, right? And all of these things that are going on. They, they capture people and they torture them in order to find information out of them. That's what I'm talking about. They, they, they capture these women, torture them, uh, uh, imprison them, in order to find information about the underground church or what was really going on. And they actually got information out of them and they went, they executed many, many people and imprisoned them. Like that type of struggle that's going on, whenever he, Paul is saying this, that's what he's talking about. We're like one faith, one baptism, one Lord. And we're all excited about it. And when he's writing it, these people are saying, yep, one Lord. Jesus is Lord, and they know the repercussions from that. It's a big deal to name the name of Jesus, y'all. And it's going to become progressively, culturally um, uh, offensive. Very much so. Because whenever you say, I believe in Jesus, it means that you believe that there's one way to heaven. That you believe that there is one way, only one way that he is the source of light and life. It's Jesus. It's not anyone else. It's not just this weird divine God view, like of little G, big G, whatever's good for you. No, it's like Jesus. It's personified in the gospel. And by saying, I am a Christian, you are, you are declaring truth in a, in a main, in major way, big way, one that's very offensive to people. The gospel is very inclusive in one sense and very exclusive in another. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. This confession, when properly communicated and properly, under, properly understood by the church, it unifies us. 
It unifies us, all right? The gospel unifies us. Now, Paul instructs us in the second way for the church to be healthy. Um, he just talked about fighting for spiritual unity. Now, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, to where things kind of change up a little bit. Let me read this. Um, verse 7, but grace. When he says grace, he's talking about grace for ministry, okay? Not saving grace, but grace for ministry. Uh, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, in case you've read ahead, you know that right here, Paul changes direction, okay? I would encourage you to read these scriptures and not just read them like, or just press play on you version and let it read to you. And like, you, don't, you never pause it and go back and say, wait, what did he say, right? What is Paul trying to say right here? He actually changes gears. Y'all know how Paul writes. He's like, you know, one, two, three, squirrel. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's how it feels like sometimes, okay? There's, all, there's meaning behind it. It's intentional. But at the same time, as a reader, sometimes it's like, wait, what? So he says, the measure of Christ's gift. Then he goes in verse 8. Therefore, it says, and he's really talking about Psalm 68, verse 18 right here. He's quoting it. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions? The earth, who, the earth, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, we're not gonna be, I'm not gonna be really teaching on these verses. I'm not going there right now, but, but there's some aspects of these verses that theologians still disagree on. They're not really sure about exactly what Paul meant in certain things. Like when he says the lower regions, what is he talking about? He literally went to the, 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 the pit of hell, like into the earth that, or was it just that he was buried? Okay. But there's all sorts of things and you could read different commentaries on that. But what Paul's really doing is he's tying the fulfillment of Jesus's victory or the, the, the fulfillment of Psalm 68 to Jesus. All right, if you go read Psalm 68, you'll see he's talking about the victory and the spoils, and, and you just have to go read the whole, the whole chapter. But he's tying Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 68. And he does that a lot. We've talked about this, that Paul will reach into the Old Testament, the scriptures that the Jewish people have been raised on, and he'll pull it in and, and into the New Testament for, for us. And he's showing them Jesus is fulfilling these things. Isn't it awesome? These prophecies, all of these things that have, we've been talking about and memorizing for years, Jesus finished it. Jesus has fulfilled these things, and he's doing it here uh, in the same way. Also, when he talks about the ascension, one of the components of the ascension of Jesus, you can read this in John 7, 39, is that as Jesus ascended later, he, Jesus had to ascend in order for the spirit to be sent. And now the spiritual gifts and all the things that we enjoy that, that build the body of Christ, Jesus had to go in order for these things to be accomplished, and, uh, and they're made possible because of Jesus. And so that's sort of like a really, really quick way of saying that. Sorry to fly through that, but we're going to continue to move on. Is that good with you guys? All right, cool. So verse 7, he said, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 11, these gifts, how do they look? What, what are they? Interestingly, they're gifts that are uh, summed up and embodied by people. He gave 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. All throughout scripture, a lot of the New Testament, you're going to find different places where Paul talks about spiritual gifts. And uh, there's all sorts of different gifts that we all have. Here, he mentions five really like ministry or, or office gifts. Okay. And these five gifts are here, it says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. The next thing that, that Paul is so overall is stressing is a healthy church celebrates spiritual diversity. Celebrates spiritual diversity, different gifts and responsibilities. There's, there's different gifts and responsibilities in the church. And gifts and responsibilities describe our functions and position, positions in the church, but gifts and roles don't describe our value. So we just had the worship team up here. They're leading us in worship, singing, wonderful, pure hearts, leading us all. And we're here in the crowd and we are following their lead. But one thing that is happening is that there is a, a function of gifts and responsibilities and roles that are taking place. But one thing that's not happening is that's not defining their value nor your value. There's not some sort of like wall here that makes me more valuable than you. We're human beings created in the image of God. I may have a different role and responsibility that may carry more weight in this organization, in this community, but it does not say that I have more value than any one of you. So I believe that there's a great amount of honor and respect for different roles and responsibilities. I believe, I believe in honoring one another, but I also don't believe in devaluing one or using that honor in order to manipulate. That's why a lot of people don't trust pastors anymore. Because pastors have ruled people. They've been God's voice. And you come to me, and I tell you what you should do. And you must listen, because I am the anointed. Right? Right? And they say things like, God told me to tell you this. And they abuse their authority, and they misuse it. A lot of times they do that out of insecurity. Some of it's learned behavior. You ever, you ever met a pastor and you watch them maybe on, you know, teach or, or whatever, you interact with them in a Sunday morning experience and then you talk to them later and they're like a completely different person? They put on the garb and then they're a completely different person when you see them at Walmart. That's one thing I could say about the pastors here on staff is that uh, we don't know how to be anybody else except who God's created us to be, and that's how we're going to operate. So, th so these offices, these, these titles have been misused. Well, I'm apostle so-and-so. I'm prophet so-and-so. I'm evangelist, you know. Evangelists, a lot of them have found their way to TV. So they're TV evangelists, and you'll see all of the abuse of those titles in the last, in the 80s and the 90s, and, and how, how it's playing out in my generation. I'm 34, you know how it's playing out, which is like, I don't believe any of you. Sorry, you're flying around in your million-dollar jets. Don't believe you. You know, and, and honestly, guys, I agree with that. I agree with that mindset. You know what it's called? It's called forcing the office in the, in the church to be accountable for what it's doing. And so, so like that, I think it's actually, it's, it's overdue. The whole concept of paying for redemption or paying for healing, all this, all this trash, it's so good to see it begin to, to, to will up, shrivel up and die. 
It's good. And you know what's replacing it? You know what's replacing all of that trash in the church? The gospel. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that good? It's good. And uh, so, so, anyway, I'm not going to go there. We celebrate spiritual diversity, all right? We celebrate our different gifts and responsibilities and roles. Anytime that you begin to look at someone and you envy them and you covet their gift or their ability or their responsibility that they have, you need to realize that at that moment, you're stepping into a place of sin where you are not celebrating the diversity that God has created in his body, but you're actually beginning to undermine it, erode it, tear it down, and you're actually affecting the overall spiritual health of this community. We don't have politics here because somebody's gone to church here for 50 years does not mean that they have more say-so than somebody that's been here for five years. Like, it's not like this, we've arrived. We've never arrived, right? We don't have safe seats on Sunday morning for those who have been around for a long time. Although we do have some reserved seating for pastors and stuff. That way they can sit somewhere from time to time. By the way, I mean, we have a lot of open spots in the front row. If you guys ever want to come and sit up front, I'd just invite you, all right? But you know what I'm talking about. So in one sense, we have to... We have to internally, we have to realize that there's going to be different gifts, responsibilities, roles, and, and that's for order's sake. We're going to lean heavily into this when we start talking about the family next month in October, because what you're going to see is Paul's going to take everything that he's talking about, and he's going he's to immediately apply it to the family. The, the, the man being the man and the woman submitting to the man out of reverence for Christ, both mutual submission together as a team, not a value, but talking about order. It's the same thing in the church. Somebody has got to be the leader. Somebody's got to be the leader. And that leader should not be manipulative, controlling, power hungry, right? They should live a life that's worthy of that calling just as much as the people that are following that person. So we celebrate spiritual diversity. Now, there's five different things he says here. Number one is apostles. And just to kind of give you a quick overview of what these things mean, apostles is someone who is gifted in an entrepreneurial type of mindset when it comes to the church. Big picture thinking. People that are, that are in a great way, moving the kingdom of God forward from the sort of like the 40,000 feet up in the air view. Somebody's got to be thinking big. How are we going to move this thing forward? Again, I'm just going to kind of gloss over these things, not going very deep. Number two, though, is, is profit. A prophet is someone who, they have the supernatural ability to speak into people's lives and to hear from God, speak into people's lives, and, and even sort of have a sense of direction of the church, where the church is headed. We need prophets. We need people that are, are hearing from God and, and sensing God's leading in the church in order to direct the church according to God's will. Remember, uh, the, the third one is evangelist, a person that's gifted to preach and teach and, and, and help people who are lost find hope and find healing in Jesus, that they, they teach and they preach to win and, uh, and save the lost. Uh, pastor, a shepherd of the church, a person that cares for the people. An apostle might not have the mindset of sitting down with somebody for coffee and spending five hours talking through the nuances of their life and all the little small things that are going on. And they're kind of like, okay, get to the point. You know, all right, guys, look, that's a reality. There's some people, I mean, even some of you, you're like, yeah, like, just get, just move, move forward, right? And then other people, they will sit at Starbucks for 10 hours and talk through every feeling, every thought, 
every attitude, pray for you 17 times and continue to, right? Like just, they are, they are this person that just wants to shepherd. And you know, the church needs it because as the apostle and the prophet and the evangelist, as they begin to win people into the kingdom of God, right? Overall, like somebody's got to take care of those people. Somebody's got to, to bandage the sheep that are hurting. Somebody's got to sit and care. I think a great, a great picture of that is our small group leaders. Our small group leaders who sit week in and week out and care for people. Do you know to be a small group leader, there's got to be a, a level of, of pastoral gifting in your heart. By the way, these five things are not just people that get paid to do these things. Okay, It's not like, oh, a title, then you're an evangelist. A title, you're a shepherd. No, 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 no. No, we're gifted in these areas. And so shepherds, pastors, we take care of people. And then there's teacher, which is highly, it's very related to pastor. In some ways, people say it's the same thing. Because pastors, shepherds are also teachers. But teachers are those who take the word of God. They, 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 they teach the word of God methodically, logically. And, and uh, they correct error. Correct error. There's a lot of error in the church. Yes, there's different ways or emphasis. But, but if it gets too far out of bounds, it can actually become error. They correct doctrine. They, they teach it. So you can have a pastor who's also a teacher, but sometimes you'll find teachers who aren't necessarily pastoral. All right? So, but, but pastors always have an element of teacher in what they're doing, but they explain the meaning of scripture and correct error and promote sound doctrine. So there's different, this is just five of them. There's many other ones like I already mentioned, but they carry different responsibilities. But it's all, here's the big thing, guys, sums up in this. All of these gifts are to build the body of Christ. They're not to build yourself. So God's gifted every single one of you with something. But did you know that you have the responsibility to actually use that something to build the kingdom of God? Not just your business, not just your family, although those things are important, but you're commanded to, to use those gifts. God has given them to you to steward them well. And one of those aspects is to build the kingdom of God. And it's to be celebrated. We celebrate each other's giftings and callings. So Let's move on to uh, verse 13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by uh, craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, grow into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The next thing that Paul says is a healthy church grows in spiritual maturity. Unity, diversity, and maturity. Every believer should be growing spiritually. Every single one of you in this room, you should be growing. The picture is this. There's certain things that are okay for a four-year-old to do, all right? I've got a 19-month-old and, and also a seven-year-old. There's certain things that my 19-month-old does that my seven-year-old does not. Why? Because my seven-year-old has matured and grown past, you know, using the bathroom on herself, okay? <laughs> like, honestly, I can't wait till the 19-month-old is not doing what she does anymore. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yesterday. Never mind. All right. <laughs> Mommy was gone shopping, and Daddy, Daddy cleaned up the mess that was left. My goodness gracious. Um, I'm one of those guys, I have to hold my breath the whole time. I'm like, 
God. <laughs> oh, God, what did you eat? <laughs> it's just a good old Saturday morning. Um, actually, I was looking over my message, holy things. All of a sudden, I was like, <laughs> oh, my. All right, let's just wait till mom gets home. <laughs> so anyway, there's certain things that my 19-month-old, your, your 19-month-old does that my seven-year-old doesn't do. But you know what? Ariana, my seven-year-old, when she's 17, she's got to be doing some other things. That is the proper development of a child. There's benchmarks. There's things. And guys, look, there's people who get saved. They know God. That, and they stop right there. They're like a giant 40-year-old man that's still in a high chair. It's weird. It's weird. All right? And you know what happens when a person says, yeah, I've been going to church there for 20 years, but yet they still have hatred in their heart. I've been going to church there. Yeah, yeah, I, I've, been, I mean, I've been here for, for 25 years, but they stopped growing 24 years ago. It's weird for a church. It's weird. It's like, man, you know, the people, again, I'm, I'm talking about our church. I'm talking about this community right here, guys. When somebody attaches themselves to this community and somebody's still sleeping around and they've been in church for 10 years and they're serving and they're doing, and, but, but there's this secretive lifestyle going on. You know what that communicates? It communicates a, 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 a weakness, an immaturity in the church. There's certain things I expect my 19 month old to throw herself on the floor and throw a fit. Like, well, I mean, we're trying to work that out of her, but you know what I mean? Like, it makes sense. She's 19 months old. But let me tell you something, when she's four, she's still doing that, I have done something wrong. I have got to continue to develop her and help her to understand how to be uh, ultimately an adult. So in this church, like people around you love you so much to actually confront you with certain things because we are supposed to be growing in Christ-likeness. That's the next thing he says. Maturity involves Christ-likeness. We've already sort of, uh, we've already delved into this, so I'm not going to rehash all of that. But the next thing he says is that we are supposed to mature. Uh, maturity involves doctrinal stability. Guys, look, everything in your life, in your walk with God is not just experiential. You're going to experience many things in your walk with God, but you've also got to grow in why you believe what you believe. Your doctrinal stability because sometimes your emotions are flipping and flopping. What do you hold to? Your doctrine, your belief, your theology. It withstands the waves and the wind. That's what he says here. Be, if, if you're not secure in what you believe, you will be tossed to and fro like a child. You'll be, you'll be, have you ever had somebody talking to you and they've done their homework and they know what they believe and they start talking to you and they ask that one question that you don't have the answer to? What happens right there in your heart? Is there a, you know what, a confidence that comes upon you that says, you know, that's a great question. Give me a couple days. Let me go study on that. Because, man, I tell you, with a confidence in your doctrine that says, I know that there is an answer to this. There is something. I've just got to go discover it and find it, right? Like, it actually embrace it. Or is it more of a fearful dread of, Oh no, is this the thing that's going to break my faith? Is it? Oh no, right? I'm talking about a church, us believers being confident in what we believe to such a point that, that we, we are just, we're stable. That involves maturity. And that's right, guys, listen, you're going to have to read your Bible more than on Sunday morning. 
You're going to have to seek the face of God through prayer. You're going to have to spend late nights on YouTube watching people uh, explain the word of God. You're going to have to, like, I find this intriguing. So many people know so much about stuff that doesn't matter. But yet when it comes to their eternity, they're dumb. It's like, I can tell you how the engine can be taken apart and put back together four different ways and increase the torque. And it's like, hey, man, so like, um, so like, man, the blood of Jesus, huh? Like, man, God is love. Like, dude, let's talk about that. He's love. You know, that's all I got. What's going on there? Whatever we study, whatever we value, we grow in and we mature in. We gotta grow and mature in our doctrine, y'all. Are there gonna be questions that are hard to answer? Absolutely. But we must engage in the process of it. So maturity involves doctrinal stability. Next thing, maturity involves truth joined with love. The original Greek here in verse 15, when he talks about speaking the truth in love, it's actually this concept of truthing in love, like this action of truthing in love, living out truth in love with people. It's sort of like how we use the term adult and we say adulting, all right? You're, I'm, I'm adulting today. I actually paid all my bills, all right? <laughs> Whatever it is for you. But you're adulting. Here he's like, you got a truth you need to be truthing and you need to be acting this out in love. Love is always truthful, but being truthful is not always loving. Church, listen, you can say the exact, correct, accurate thing without love and it's, it's really gonna do damage. You'd be, you'd be better off shutting your mouth and not saying anything because truth without love can be damaging. But you know what? Love without truth can also be damaging. You got to speak the truth and love to yourself, to your family, to your friends. And you also, as you speak truth, you also need to receive truth and love. Guys, look, people are going to tell you things. You're going to have friends around you. They're going to come up. They're going to say, hey, look, I, I love you, but like, I really feel like you're missing the mark here. I, I love you, but I'm telling you, like, I saw the way that you talked to your wife. And I'm just going to tell you, I've been there, but I'm telling you, you're destroying her. You're destroying her. And guess what, man? At that point, you know what you need to do? Dude, thank you so much for sharing that. And um, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna pray about that. Thank you for loving me so much to say. This past week, I was in a, in a group and, and somebody shared some sin that was in their life. They confessed their sin. And um, um, it was a bombshell. And you know, what was amazing about it is that the response was so godly and so pure. And it was, first off, thank you for being so transparent. But then everybody surrounded them and loved them. Why? Because God had forgiven this person. God's, God's forgiven you, but you know what? The Bible also says that we confess our faults one to another to find healing. Find healing. So if we have an environment of love where truth is being spoken in love properly, people can confess without fear of of. of you know, being ostracized and, and all, it's, it's a wonderful thing. But guess what? Somebody's got to speak the truth in love, in love, but we've also got to receive the truth in love. And if we're doing it properly, there's good fruit. It's good fruit. All of this is totally related. The last thing is that maturity involves contribution. It involves contribution, us serving the body to build the body up together. 
And the purpose isn't to build yourself, but to build the body, to build the kingdom of God, that you would look back at the end of your life and say, you know what? God used me to be a contributing member of the kingdom of God, to build up the kingdom of God and press it forward in my family, in my workplace, in my church. It's what it's about. After this service, immediately following the service, we're gonna have our next steps class. It's right through these doors. So you go out this door, take a left. I'm gonna be in there. It's about a 45 minute class where I wanna share with you who we are, what we're doing and how you could be a part, how you could be a contributing part of the kingdom of God here at Northwood Church. And because it's this picture of all of us coming together to contribute. It's not just one person. I don't, I don't, I'm not the, the only person that runs this church. If it was by myself, it wouldn't be too good. It's teams, it's people who submit their gift, their callings together, united on the same page, maintaining unity in order to advance the kingdom of God in this church. And we want you to be a part of that, not just sitting back, not just being an armchair quarterback here on Sunday mornings, getting in the game, all right? I wanna wrap up by saying this. It's a quote from Paul Tripp, and I think it's really applicable for today for us, but he says this, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids which would be wonderful, right? Some of you are like, that's all I really need right there. If I had that, all is well. It's bigger than that. And it's also bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively changing them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. Every single person in this room, he wants you to be a part of it. Come on. Some of you, the first three slides actually summed up your life pretty well. And you're like, hey, that's actually, that's kind of what I'm shooting for. What after that? Like, like what then? Well, then it's, then it's this. Well, then what after that? At some point, we're all confronted with the, the question of where's our life ultimately leading to in eternity? And Paul is straight up through the book of Ephesians. We've been very honest about it, that, that all of our lives are leading to physical death. We know that. That's a, that's a reality. But not all of our lives are leading and being lived right now in spiritual life. And I wanna give every person in this room an opportunity to be a part of the kingdom of God, to bow your knee, to bow your heart before the king and say, you're Lord, you're savior of my life, take over. So let's go and bow our heads, close our eyes and take this moment to allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. And for many of you, you already know, you already know that you're far from God. You already know that you are lacking a true intimate relationship with him. It's not a reality. And right now you, you just feel a, a yearning, a desire to respond to this. It's not very complicated. I believe that God's already drawing you to himself. At this moment, you're just responding. So if you know that you're far from God, maybe you've drifted over the last few years, and today you wanna make a decision to follow Jesus and, and come back underneath his covering and surrender your life to him. I want you to know that, you're, that his grace is sufficient for you. There's no sin that's too great that he can't cover. His grace is, is all-consuming. His love covers a multitude of sin. It's who he is. It's what he's done through the cross. Jesus dying on the cross to pay the price for your sin, being raised to new life so that you can be raised to new life. So right now, just say something like this. God, I surrender my heart to you. All that I am, all that I have, my successes and failures. 
God, I ask that you would forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of the things that I've done, the things that I am, that you would renew my heart, transform me from the inside out. I submit all that I am to you today. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for forgiveness and your grace, and I receive it into my life right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.